Hey folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Mason Gravely. Today's episode is, a, you know, just a little late. It was a holiday weekend, took a few days off. Um, but Nicole's story, this story right here is unbelievable. Nicole fell 60 feet while canyoneering, uh, which was, you know, probably supposed to be a life-ending experience. She survived, broke a lot of bones, uh, could not walk, was paralyzed initially, and had a long road to recovery, but she had survived. And she says of this experience, and I quote, the greatest moment of her life. And that is such a bizarre phenomenon for those of us who have never experienced anything like this. But I've heard it on this show time and time again, the people who have a life-changing experience, a nearly life-ending experience even, and where that that experience causes long-term change in their life, whether it be injury or something they can no longer do, all of them have gotten to the point in their life where they say, I'm actually glad this happened to me. And it's just bizarre to me. It's just foreign to me. I've never done anything like this. But it, but I tell you what, it, it doesn't make me necessarily wish something upon me or anyone else like this, but it does give me hope that if something like this ever does happen, you can handle it and you can choose to, to look at it the same way someone like Nicole does, uh, who just makes it feel like something that isn't as big and isn't as dangerous and isn't as scary as it seems. She's just such a positive force, such a, just a calming presence. It was really fascinating and really encouraging to talk to her. So I was blown away by this story and I hope you will be too. There will be a film coming out about this story, uh, where the rope ends. We're going to, you know, plug some stuff for that. You can check it out in the show notes, uh, just to see like a trailer and some information on it. But, uh, Nicole, thank you so much for being on. Thanks for telling this story. And by the way, thank you for the t-shirt. I got the t-shirt as well. So I will be rocking that um, here shortly. So let's go ahead and jump in. All right, folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. You heard a little bit about Nicole's story in the intro, um, but now we're going to hear from Nicole uh, herself. Nicole Doan, welcome to the show. Hi, Mason. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thank you for being on. I'm, I'm excited. I, I I see a huge smile on your face. It sounds like it's just something you're excited to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've, you've found me at my most favorite time of the day, which is morning. I'm very much a morning person, and I just got done with my yoga session. So I'm all primed and ready to go for oh, you. Oh, <laughs> fantastic. So, so I, speaking of which, you know, it's more of around lunchtime for me. So speaking of which, where where's home for you? And uh, where did you grow up, if that's not the same place? Sure. I grew up in the Midwest in a tiny little farm town of about 5,000 people in um, central Illinois. And I moved out to Seattle, Washington about 13 years ago. So um, totally just not really on a whim, but really kind of wanting to have an adventure and uh, see more of the world. And I really didn't make it farther than this because I feel like there's so much to see out here. You could live here your whole life and not see it all. Oh, I, I was just in Seattle and, uh, it was it, every time I go, it is one place that I do wish my wife and I would have tried before having kids and coming back home to the East coast. We were out West for a while, but I, I really, I told her just a couple weeks ago, I really wish we would have chosen Seattle as our main place to like you know, explore because it's every direction from water to, to summits and in 360 degrees, you have something interesting and exciting to do. It's it's an amazing place. It is. It's a hidden treasure. So don't tell too many people. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) No, I know what you mean though, because I, my daughter was just starting kindergarten when I moved out here and it was kind of that push to either I do it now or I never do it because once they plant their roots and they don't want to leave and you don't want to uproot them from, you know, their friendships and all of that, then you are kind of obligated to kind of, you know, stick it out for them. And uh, so I just, just kind of had to do it at that point. And um, it's been one of the best decisions I've ever made. That is awesome. And so you said you were looking for adventure when you went out there. 
Um, were you already involved in adventure sports and doing this kind of stuff or, or did you discover it when, when actually going out there? Yeah, there aren't a lot of, um, mountaineers in Illinois. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I did have one friend though, that I worked with and he would always tell me about how he was training to summit Mount Rainier and he would invite me over to his house to hang on ropes out of his tree. And I thought that he was a bit insane (laughs) because it was just a culture that was not known about in the Midwest. It wasn't anything that you, that anyone else was doing, you know? So it wasn't really until I got out here that that became kind of normal behavior. And I really was interested in finding out more about it. It's, you know, it's funny. We've had a, the Midwest, you know, isn't known for that, but I, I don't know. We, we've had three guests on this show, pretty prolific. Mount, one was a mountaineer. One's uh, a famous author. And the other one is a very famous travel photographer and writer. They all come from this very small town in Wisconsin, just by chance. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and they both, they, they all, they all I, I finally became a theme where like, Hey, did you know you had two other people from my same hometown? And I reached out to all of them, connected them. And it's just been really cool. So, you know, I don't know, there is something adventurous about that spirit. And when you, when you take it up, you never know where it's going to take you, I guess, all the way to Seattle. Oh Yeah. I think, you know, there's a subtle beauty of the plains and you learn to appreciate it when you're there. And I mean, it's, it's spectacular. There are things I miss like fireflies and, you know, thunderstorms. But when you come out to a place like this, that is just so in your face, just draws you into nature in a different kind of way where you don't have a choice, but if the sun is shining, you have to hit the trail, you know, it's just, it's a way of life out here. You just get called into it. And, um, I don't know. I think growing up in the Midwest gave me a more, more of an appreciation for that when I came out here, just to see the rugged wild of what's happening in nature is, I don't know. It, it calls you. Yeah. It, it's unavoidable beauty. That's for sure. It's uh, there's no, there's no looking for it there. It finds you, <laughs> you know, I, yeah. I, I definitely know what you're talking about. Well, it sounds like, you know, you, 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 followed, even if you weren't there in the Midwest, you followed one of the traditional career paths of the Midwest by being a nurse. Uh, I I saw a joke recently, like in the Midwest, every person has a choice between like three or four jobs and it's teacher, nurse. Um, I forget what the other two were, but it was pretty funny because everyone I know from the Midwest is a nurse too. So, um, Teacher, nurse, farmer's wife. (laughs) <laughs> they had That's it for, pretty much, oh, I man. mean, at least growing up there, you don't feel like you have many other pathways to go down. So yeah, that was one of the, one of the reasons why I decided to come out this way. I just, not only for myself, but for my daughter too, just wanted to open up the possibilities You know, there's a simplicity that's so beautiful about being in a small town in the Midwest. I mean, like, for example, my little brother was walking home from school one day and my mom got a phone call. Your son is throwing up on the side of the road. I just thought you wouldn't want to know, you know, like that kind of thing doesn't happen in in a larger city where no one really knows each other and they're living on top of each other in a way that they almost don't want to know one another. You know, we all kind of need more space. But um, you have those friendships and people that are looking out for one another. And it's like a a giant family. So it's a beautiful experience. But also, uh, you know that the world is so big and there's so much to see and do. And it feels like, at least to me at that point in my life, it felt like, I would be missing out on a large part of life if I let my fear of change prevent me from moving forward and, and exploring. Well, that that eventually took you into the world of canyoneering. Can you tell us about that as far as you get out to Seattle, you're discovering a lot of these things. When did canyoneering become something you were doing or was it something you were just trying out? And just tell us about maybe your experience going into your level of experience going into this this day? So when I first moved to Seattle, it started with just little hikes to um, on 
on trails that I'd never been on before of city, city parks. And then it became more of an adventure to, you know, get out and get outside of the city and go towards those mountains that were calling me. And, you know, I had a huge respect for nature because it's so rugged out here that you really can't hike in the way that you do in the Midwest. Like I could hike in a pair of flip-flops, no problem in the Midwest. Out here, you really need a first aid kit. You need um, to know who your search and rescue friends are. Uh, you never know when you could be caught out when the storm hits or, you know, the weather changes. And so, you know, and then there's also all this wildlife, there's bears and all kinds of, you know, different things out here that I think at first was a little bit intimidating. And then the more I was in it um, with experienced people, the more I learned to not just respect it, but anticipate that there could be a time when this doesn't go the way that I thought it would. I originally moved in with a lady here in Seattle who was a wildlife ecologist, and she took me all over the place and helped me to fall in love with this area and get confident out there. Um, the first time I went to Mount Rainier was with her, and we hiked up to Camp Muir, which is where people camp before they summit, and we glissaded down and I had never glissaded before. She told me to bring this trash bag with me and I couldn't understand why until we got up there and she said, hop in and, you know, you get in the trash bag and you just fly down that mountain. Um, and it's kind of like this hyper color experience of just joy and giddiness and also kind of a lot of fear, <laughs> you know, <laughs> And I think that was the start of really wanting to adventure more and learn about different ways to be out in nature out here because it was so dramatically different from where I had been. So um, I had some friends at work who were, you know, very well versed in climbing and mountaineering and um, were out in nature and in different ways than I had been. And I started hanging out with them outside of work and they, you know, would tell me their stories and, and I, I learned bit by bit about that culture and the drive and what pulls them out into these rugged experiences where they don't really know exactly if they have the skill set to achieve or if, or if it's a mind over matter thing. You know, I hear about them putting up tents on the side of a mountain wall and sleeping there overnight so that they can summit in the morning and freezing their butts off. And, you know, just really incredible stories that I think, why would you ever put yourself in that situation? And then that curiosity starts to build and you learn more about it. And it's kind of a slow unfolding of first you learn how to hike in the woods and then you think, wow, wouldn't it be cool to be able to hang off of that um, or see that canyon in a different way. Like I would like to be a part of that canyon instead of be walking beside it, you know? And so you start practicing in a climbing gym and just learning bit by bit and getting a little bit more confidence until you feel like, yeah, maybe I can, maybe I can take my first adventure out there. And that's kind of where I was at when this accident happened. I had, um, been to Oregon and done maybe four or five canyons that were Class C um, water canyons at this point. And I was very much a novice and, you know, very respectful of nature and the power of it, but also just completely thrilled and enamored to be out there. And um, that thrill is a bit of a distraction from the danger at some points. You know, you just are so immersed in in the beauty and and all of the sensations that you're feeling that sometimes um, you almost forget how dangerous what you're doing can be, you know? So that's kind of where... That's definitely where I was um, on the day that I had my accident. That was my headspace. What do you 
What do you remember about that day? I know I've heard you recount the story a few times on a few uh, some other shows, and your memory seems very vivid about it. it you know, was it that I, I've never had? I've been in one car accident. It wasn't all that bad, but that sensation of time slowing down. Can you describe to us what happened? Like what what led to the fall, and what do you just most vividly remember about it? Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. I'd like to introduce you to our newest sponsor, Gnarly Nutrition. I know you've heard about them recently because we've had some guests on recently that credits Gnarly for helping them do the the adventures that we talk about on this show. So uh, Chris Fisher was one who did the Vert Max. He did 400,000 feet of elevation gain in a month. Check out that episode. Uh, That was not too far back. And he credits Gnarly Nutrition for keeping him, his body literally sustained during that time, just packing in the calories. It's amazing nutrition for anyone doing anything adventure, uh, endurance-based, whether that's in the mountains or bikepacking or whatever. It's a great thing to have with you prior to an an adventure training and also during an adventure. And also Jason Hardrath, who recently did um, the 100 fastest known times. He did 100 mountains in 50 days and just was slamming gnarly nutrition. He also credits gnarly for essentially keeping his body sustained. And so um, gnarly nutrition has been around since 2008. They were born in Utah's Wasatch Mountains, uh, and they are committed to educating and inspiring athletes of all levels to be as nutritionally sound as possible. Their nutrition supplements are certified by NSF and have science-backed products free of hormones, free of GMOs, proprietary blends, uh, and nothing artificial. So Gnarly is going to help you get ready and help you sustain during uh, those huge adventure efforts. So if you're looking for the best tasting and the most trusted sports nutrition brand for any endurance athletes, go to Go Gnarly, and that is G-N-A-R-L-Y dot com, and use the code GnarlyAdventure15 for 15% off. And just, you know, a personal plug here, I love Gnarly. I love the folks there. They're doing such a fantastic job. They have been so great to work with. Uh, they helped provide some products for um, our Journey to 100 film series uh, that we were doing giveaways with at the end of every film screening. So it's been a pleasure to work with them so far. So if you'd like to support the folks that are supporting this show, definitely go visit gonarly.com. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. I'm certain that what led to the fall was an experience. I was really in the moment, in the joy. Um, It was, you know, multiple repels into the day. We were all just giddy with how beautiful the day was and warm and just spectacular. So I think I was just moving a little bit too fast and wasn't wasn't really thinking about the next step when I, I dropped over a ledge and my feet were no longer on the rock, but um, now hanging in the air. And at that point... There's, um, you know, something called your brake hand when you're rappelling. And if your brake hand isn't in the right spot, you really can't control the descent. And uh, when I dropped over, my my brake hand ended up above my head. And as soon as I saw that, I just, it was like going from uh, a warm jacuzzi to just the most shocking sensation of kind of it's almost out of body when it, when you're so shocked like you're so sure of yourself and you're so happy and then you go just right into this moment of everything has changed and now now you know that this may be the last moment that you're alive that juxtaposition is so just startling is not a big enough word. (laughs) You're just, your, your breath is taken away. Your whole body kind of seizes up and you're left there hanging um, literally in midair thinking, oh my God, I'm going to die, you know? Um, And it's a spin out. 
your eyes can't focus. Your body can't react the way that you want it to. You're just kind of in this headspace of spinning, spinning, just, you, you, it's like rolling downhill with the momentum of that, not being able to, you know, get your bearings and, and slow the fall. It's just an out of control, reckless feeling. Um, but yet there's something at the core, I think, of every human that yearning to, you know, want to continue to live overtakes everything else. And somehow you can break free of that grip of the spinning. And my the way that I ended up doing it was by asking myself, if this is the last moment that you're going to live, what do you want to do with it? You know, because you do have a choice. Either you can go out screaming, terrified, and, you know, splat on the ground, or you can take control of this for the last little bit, maybe even become curious about your death and wanting to experience every bit of this life, even if it is not going the way that you want it to. And that opened up this path that led me to what really matters in my life. And I mean, you hear people talk about, you know, their near-death experiences and and what really matters. Um, to me, what mattered in that moment was that I needed my daughter to know that I loved her. I, I just, that was the only thing that seemed to have any weight in this world anymore. It was the one thing that I could not imagine never doing again is telling her that I loved her. That's what I focused on. And that was where the inspiration started to just want to use every bit of this life, no matter what, no matter what hand you're dealt, just just use it in the best way that you can, you know? So I just focused on sending her as much love as I could in that moment. And that focus shifted me out of the spinning enough to see another way out of a scenario that I thought was certain death. And I saw a ledge over to the side and I was able to kind of aim for that ledge and, and land. Um, it was still about a 60 foot fall, but the fall that I would have had if I wouldn't have been able to center myself would have been much greater. So you, you were not roped up. I was on a rope, but at this point, well, one thing I should say is that at this point in canyoneering in a class C canyon, all of the experts felt like the risk was too great to have backup equipment on you um, to to like that you would normally use in climbing because um, you can get caught underneath a waterfall and drowned um, with your backup equipment not allowing you to release. Uh, so at this point, if you kind of made a mistake in this sport at the wrong time, there wasn't anything to kind of capture and 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 recorrect for you. So. I was on a rope, but really the only things that were hanging on to the rope were my fingers sliding down and, you know, watching the skin kind of roll off of my hand bit by bit, holding on for dear life. And there was nothing more than that. Oh, my goodness. You mentioned wanting to tell your daughter you loved her uh, in that moment. How did you do that? Or what were you... Yeah, I could understand that. I'm a parent of young children, and I just... I can't, I can't imagine that. Now, let me ask you this too. Initially, I feel like my risk tolerance for adventure has has diminished just with little kids. Does it 
come back as they get a little older? Because from my understanding, your daughter was 15 at the time. I think I didn't necessarily have an aversion to risky sports. I had no experience with them. You know, I, I didn't have any experience with mountaineering or climbing or anything like that until I came out here. Um, the things that I did prior to, you know, coming out to the Pacific Northwest was more in the lines of like biking and, you know, marathon running and things like that. Um, and I didn't, I, I did a little water skiing. That was probably the most risky thing I think Honestly, I had Honestly, to, cycling but... of all those things is probably the riskiest <laughs> yeah, probably, if it's on a road. For sure. But I think as you as you gain skills, um, it becomes it starts to feel less risky because you um, have practiced all of these safety maneuvers and you feel like you really understand what's happening and you start to trust your body and you you know develop just you know a skill set that that makes you feel like you're safe, <laughs> even though you know. I mean, perfect example is looking at Alex Honnold, I think, when he's free climbing and how he's completely fearless. But um, it's because he's so solid and, and, and confident. He's done it over and over and over and over and trusts that it's going to go the same way every time. It's kind of the way humans are, I guess. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Whew, yeah, one of those moments. I, I, I just, whew, yeah, that can definitely, like, it's amazing just how instantaneous it is, how quickly everything changes. You say you fall the 60 feet, you maneuvered yourself to, to land on this ledge. What was the next thought? What was the next thing? Where, did you go unconscious? Did you, were you immediately aware of what was going on? What pain did you feel, if any? You know, was your body in shock? Yeah, I remember um, falling. I remember that time slowing feeling, um, you know, that they talk about in car wrecks where everything is just in slow motion. And I remember thinking, you're still falling. You're still falling. <laughs> and um, kind of mentally preparing for what I was going to do when I hit the ground. I, I just, you know, being a trauma nurse, I had seen <clears throat> enough accidents to know that if you don't fight the momentum and you become kind of one with the fall, then that um, thing that you think that's going to protect you, that tensing up um, can actually hurt you more in situations like this where you don't actually have control or the physical capability to control. So I just kept telling myself to, you know, be like water, let the fall take you, try to land on your feet, but don't, you know, just, just fall into it and just kind of roll down your spine and try not to hit your head. So it was kind of amazing. That's how it happened. My feet landed first and I just kind of whoop, slipped right into it, didn't have a choice. And I didn't lose consciousness. I didn't have any breath left in my body, but I was alive and awake and just completely just shocked by the fact that I was, you know, <laughs> I have seen people die from a three foot fall off a ladder, you know, and to have lived through a fall like that, I was pretty certain that, you know, this was, even though I had lived through that moment, that, that there's a good possibility that I would still die out there, you know? So I started right away as a nurse assessing my injuries and, I started with my feet and kind of worked my way up and noticed that my legs were very numb. I really couldn't feel the tops of my legs at all. I had horrible pain in my back. I, I couldn't take a deep breath, um, kind of like a ch crushing chest pain um, that made me panting. Um, and... And I, I knew that there were probably internal injuries and definitely a spinal cord injury involved um, at that point. And here I am just kind of halfway down a 
300-foot waterfall um, in the middle of the woods, and now what do you do, you know? So it goes from that moment of sheer terror right into another where now you're faced with a more challenging obstacle, which because you have a little bit of control over this, you didn't have any control over the fall really, but now you're kind of responsible to try to figure out how to get out of there and how to keep your friends safe and everybody um, with a level head so that we can make it out of this um, situation because it wasn't like it was at the end of the climb. Um, And once you drop into a canyon, um, you're pretty well committed. There's really no way out except to continue to rappel down um, and get out of here. So that's where we were at. Um, A friend of mine had a rescue beacon and she pushed it. And then another friend of mine had a satellite telephone and he got on the horn right away and started speaking with different search and rescue organizations in the area. Um, There was a consensus that had started to develop that it was such a challenging place to lift a person out of by helicopter that they just really weren't sold on the idea that that was going to be a viable option for me. Um, So the search and rescue organizations really were trying to um, come in from above and come in from below and set up zip lines so that they could ferry me across the waterway um, and, and try to establish, you know, a safe way to get out of there. Um, I was so unaware of the risk. I mean, I knew as a nurse that she shouldn't move my spine or that could create more of a problem. But um, even though it sounds safe to hook somebody up to uh, a zip line in a basket and send them across the waterway, it's, um, from what I hear, a very bumpy ride that's not very well controlled. And that option probably would have left me paralyzed for sure, if not something worse. Um, So luckily enough for me, we had search and rescue people out here that are skilled enough to be able to fly or hover a helicopter just, you know, feet away from a waterfall and trees on both sides of them and, and, and then safely rappel 100 feet out of a a helicopter down onto a slippery ledge and um, rescue this silly girl. (laughs) Wow. They were phenomenal. Unbelievable. Yeah, I didn't even think about the challenge of where you were in figuring all that out. What I find amazing is that you were airlifted or you were taken to the same trauma center that, you worked for. It sounds like it's probably the premier center in the area for, for this kind of thing. So what, what was that experience like? Where was it, did it mean anything in the sense of irony or just comforting knowing that you're going to be in the care of people, you know? Yeah. So the trauma center I work at, you know, trauma centers are kind of based by population. So it covers a large area, Alaska, Montana, Idaho, uh, and and Wyoming, but um, it's because those population, it's not population dense, but it, it covers a, a large area. So really there was no other option than for me to go to my trauma center. It was the only one in a five-state region, you know? So <laughs> um, that ended up being such a gift though, because um, my friends that I was climbing with were also nurses and they called to the back desk in the emergency room and said, you know, Nicole had an accident, she's coming in. And and everybody um, was aware, I, I work kind of in a float pool. So I, I know a lot of people in the hospital and um, just knowing that they knew who I was gave me um, a sense of peace and that I think, you know, they're going to do everything they can to make sure that all the ducks are in a row and everything goes as smoothly as possible to give me the best 
chance for survival as possible. Um, so the search and rescue people dropped me off with another helicopter organization that ended up taking me to the hospital. Um, they did that because my breathing started to become compromised and they thought they were going to need a higher level of care and they needed to have the appropriate people on board the aircraft. So um, when I got switched over to this other helicopter, um, the gentleman who was taking care of me said, I am Erica's husband. And Erica is a nurse that I work with at the hospital. And he said, Erica's waiting for you in the emergency room and she's going to take care of you when you get there. And until then, I am going to take care of you. And so from that moment, I just felt like I was with my family, you know, that there were people um, lined up at every little turn to um, personally protect me and, you know, take care of me. So that felt really good. I mean, um, I always thought before this point that it would be the worst nightmare to <laughs> become a patient in my own hospital. But when you're that vulnerable, you just need to know that people are with you that care about you. And, well, and, and, you, and your... you can also give a, uh, you know, unbiased review now of the care from uh yeah. from within the care as well as with outside of it exactly i think it definitely gave me a new perspective as a nurse um on what's important you know um we focus on such high level stuff because that's what saves people's lives but the things that really matter are that kind touch and the you know, eye contact and someone really being with you. And, you know, all of that matters so much that I think it's it's easy um, because healthcare is so advanced nowadays where you have all of this equipment and all of these drugs and, you know, just it's an incredible thing that we're doing that it's so it's so easy to lose track of that human element that is just as important as any other, especially to the patient. Absolutely. Uh, I, I know this is backtracking a little, but you had a dream the night before you went on this trip. Do you, do you find significance in that now? I know at the time it's like, oh, that was strange, but but do you feel like that was some sort of sign for you? Or, or what, what do you think about that now? Well, I don't know. I mean... I just think that life is so mysterious <laughs> and especially after this accident, because there were so many things that lined up just perfectly in order for me to not only have this experience, but to live through it and tell the story on the other side that it just, it's hard to believe that it's just coincidental at times. And yeah, it does affect me and my life. I mean, not to the way that I will change my plans based off of a feeling that um, has nothing to substantiate it, but it is a part of the information now that maybe would have been kind of blown off or shrugged off at a different point in my life, you know? I think that the body is so much more than just this physical being and that we have six senses that we don't give enough respect to. And it's a part of the information gathering that should be relevant and that should be just, you know, a piece of the puzzle as you navigate through uncertainty. T tell us a little bit about, I know it's a long journey, a lot longer than the fall that is, and uh, ongoing, but uh, your recovery, just how were your spirits initially after the fall and, and knowing that you were going to live and um, obviously being able to embrace with your daughter, I'm sure it was a, a huge moment, but like what, what, what was that process like for you and how were you able to just, I don't know, maintain the smile on your face that you have now? <laughs> well, I'm, I mean, at first it was euphoric, you know, it was 
certainly just otherworldly to have lived through um, a near-death experience and to know how I would perform in that moment and then to get to the other side of it and have lived through it. It was just like, boom, you know, like such a, I don't know, it's not something people think about a lot or often it, it, that when they're when they're dying, but there's a piece of, I think, every person who um, not just wonders, but is probably fearful of what that day is going to be like for them, you know? And so um, that bit of information just... It it just was overwhelmingly beautiful to to know that this moment that was undefined for me prior to this day um, now is defined as something that I have a bit of control over and um, and I can make it whatever I want it to be and and I have the ability to do that you know not only is it a possibility but it, it's a it's a reality now and and it's formed in my mind in a different way. So that was beautiful and it helped to protect me from a lot of the physical tragedy that was going on, um, the financial tragedy, um, just kind of all of it. And I wanted to stay in that state of euphoria, you know, for as long as I could. Um, and, you know, I think that people keep a smile on their face for a lot of different reasons. But for me, a lot of it, as that euphoria started to fade, it was more about me lying to myself about where I was at with the experience than it was about me trying to put on face for somebody else. I, I couldn't allow that, um, you know, fading into the reality of the situation, the the devastation of the injury physically, financially, emotionally, all of that was just not acceptable at first. It was definitely um, something that I pushed away with both hands and both feet as hard as I could and just know I'm still happy. I'm still just elated that I'm alive. I'm still just elated, you know. I'm still grateful for everything and everyone and this experience and all of it's beautiful. And it was extreme. It was an extreme way to view it. And I I think that all of us have probably had a little bit of that before and um sooner or later, it's impossible to control, you know, just what needs to come up will come up. It's, it's just a matter of, are you going to control it when it comes up or is it going to control you? Um, and if you aren't allowing yourself to be aware of it and, um, you know, mindfully moving through it, then it will start to come up in other ways that aren't expected and are probably out of character. Um, you know, just episodes of, wow, I didn't know I was that mean or, you know, however it comes up for you. Um, mainly it came out on my mom um, and she was just a, a guardian angel there sent to help me heal and um, was pretty much giving up her life in order for me to have someone to support me during my accident. But um, yeah, I I couldn't stand the fact that I was dependent on her. And uh, I think that all of this bottled up, you know, anger and guilt and frustration about being in this body that didn't work anymore, um, just started to spill out onto her in a way that um, was uncontrolled. And and we've talked about it after the fact, you know, um, about how hard that was for her and for me. Um, and really, I think that when I was in it, I couldn't see it happening. And the only thing 
that was recentering for me was to be in nature. So I would sit by the water and I'd just listen to the waves rolling in for hours. Um, something about that was so soothing. It was kind of like I could hear my breath in each wave. And it was just this lullaby that kind of soothed whatever angst it was underneath there. And um, I think that's what nature is for a lot of people. It's so much more than what we give it credit for. So um, helped to bring me back to myself and to allow myself to feel these waves of emotion as they came in a more productive and controlled way. And then, you know, eventually I started to make myself, make my way back to myself and, um, you know, didn't have to pretend anymore that I was grateful because I finally made it to the other side. And I, you know, I, I was no longer pretending anymore. The gratitude was, was real. And once again, could embrace life. Wow. You talked about having a, a, a positive experience with this. We, we've heard from adventurers on this show who have gone through life-altering injuries. And something I've heard them say it a couple of times is, is how they are at the point or their goal is to get to the point that they're actually glad this happened versus the alternative of it not happening. How do you feel about that? Would you have rather have this not happened at all and just continued your life the way it was going to see what else was down the road? Or are you glad this happened? Gosh, I, I could never imagine it not happening. Um, it's completely transformed who I am and what I'm doing with my life and um, has given me more meaning and purpose and gratitude for just this experience of being human than I could ever imagine before this point. I, I just have this clarity now about what really matters and what doesn't. And a lot of the fears that were holding me back prior to this accident are just no longer even in the rearview mirror. They're just, they just kind of evaporated because I have clarity about, you know, what I think this experience is and and what is actually important and what is just kind of superficial. Um, so I think it's a gift and it's one of the reasons why I continue to get out in the canyons, even though, you know, at first it was just as terrifying as that day when I fell. Um, I think, um, you know, after you've been through something traumatic and you've found the the light of it and you've and you you just want to stay in that moment again um it does fade and so reminding yourself of how precious life is and how you know not every moment is guaranteed is um a great thing for me because it um it gives a bit of just urgency to the situation. So you you no, no longer put your, your dreams and your inspirations on the back burner anymore. It's something that needs to happen now, you know? So the more I can remind myself of that um, by getting out in the canyon and and remembering just how much everything can be taken away in a moment, the more active I am at participating in my life. You, you say you still get out there. You, you, make, you make it a point, you make it a mission to, to be out there in the canyon still. Do, do you feel like this has changed your relationship with the outdoors and with nature at all? I've heard that before from other people who maybe have had a not so great encounter with an animal or an accident like this, that the way they view it's just different. It's, mm -hmm. you know, not, not better or worse, just different. How has it changed the way you look at the outdoors? 
Um, prior to the accident, I would say the outdoors always, it definitely called me. Like I said, it calls you to the path. You just, you can't help it, but get out there on a sunny day. Uh, and you don't know exactly what you're looking for, but there's something inspiring about it. There's something that just, ooh, connects you to your your the heart of who you really are. And I think before this, I, I went for that beautiful experience of like, that connection and that, you know, upliftment and all of that. And now I find myself using nature more as a teacher than I ever did before. I think that I'm learning so much about myself just by being out there and watching the way that nature's resilience kind of echoes through every aspect of of what you see and I'm learning about how you don't have to be anything but what you were made to be it's just there's some clarity there that I think every person is they say the teacher arrives when the student is ready but I I think that Nature is always there for all of us to learn from. And we each have different lessons that we're going through in our lives, but the answers are out there in a different way that's unobtrusive and unrelenting and also just very gratifying that, you know, there's no judgment. We're all kind of in this experience in the same way, we all have the same set of rules that we live by on this earth. So it's it's gratifying that there's it's it's there's a clarity that you can get from learning from nature that's that's different than learning from another human being. Not that that's not just as important, but I don't know if I can even bring words to how much nature means to me now. Wow. Amazing, amazingly put. Well, since then, uh, there has been a film that has been produced, and I know that you were apprehensive at first about getting your story told in that way, but can you tell us about the film, what it's about, and and where to find it, and just the whole process of of telling your story through that medium? Yeah, the film um, developed as kind of a call and response to my desire to give back to search and rescue in some profound way. And I had saved $20,000 and I was going to make my donation and it was going to change the world, I thought. And then I asked them, you know, just what would $20,000 do for you? And they they kind of giggled because they said, you know, Nicole, your rescue alone cost well over $20,000. And we do 80 plus rescues out here every summer, you know, so... <laughs> Uh, I knew I had to do something bigger and I had this opportunity. I was approached by a girl who, um, you know, wanted to make a documentary and I said I would do it if if it had, you know, some kind of a benefit for search and rescue. So uh, we started making this film. Um, I'm kind of the human interest story to gain... Um, you know, a fan base that maybe doesn't know anything about search and rescue. Um, and, and it's... Um, it's developed into um, this kind of human journey of struggle and resilience. And um, and the fall is kind of the impetus for telling the story. But um, it's kind of, it's it's been a huge piece of my healing journey as well to be able to kind of walk back through all of these aspects of the accident and kind of meticulously pick them apart and dissect them and um, move through each one of these emotions I was having as I, I was uh, I was recovering and um, you know come to a different understanding of what that was all about. It's been really incredible. So it's been a gift to work with Bailey Center and. Um, and Troy Gordon from Tag Creative, uh, we've developed this movie called Where the Rope Ends. And 
hopefully we'll have it finished by this fall. But uh, currently we're getting primed and ready to start a, a bunch of test screenings. So um, people can give us their feedback on, on how the film is coming off to them at this point uh, um, so that we can start heading into the final stages of making this film. So it's been a five-year labor of love that we've um, been doing here. It's all been an all-volunteer situation up to this point. Um, and so it's just been incredible to see how many people have shown up and been supportive of this message so that we could get to where we are today, which is a feature-length film um, that we're really proud of. That's fantastic. Awesome. Well, I, I will be excited to check that out um, when it's ready. And uh, I love that you're making it about more than, um, obviously your story is worthy of a film, but making it about the people that helped, helped, helped you get out of there. That's amazing. Definitely speaks to, to where uh, your priorities are and what, what the kind of story you want to tell. So uh, what will tell us about, as we wrap up, just what are you up to these days? What does life consist of? And maybe some of the biggest lessons you have, you continue to walk away from, from this experience, the, the lessons that apply to everyone. Well, I think that the biggest like internal journey that I'm going on right now is figuring out um, kind of where I'm on autopilot and living outside of alignment with this new understanding because of habitual patterns that are kind of just laid into my previous existence. So for example, um, now that, now that I'm on the other side of this, I have this intense desire to just be as authentic as I can be. And it's incredible how many parts of the human psyche are there not not necessarily because you were authentically that person but you you layer these things on top without even noticing that you're doing it to fit in in society and to just be accepted i don't know it's it's crazy it's almost like every day that i realize that oh there's yet again one more thing that I, I'm not sure if that's really of me or if it's, you know, something that was expected of me or something that I thought would impress someone else. And you think you're living authentically until you start to really look kind of at the nitty gritty of it all. Um, so that's been my internal journey. And this um, documentary is kind of like the final test, you know? It's like, are you really ready to be seen for who you are? <laughs> because it's about to happen in kind of a big way, you know? And so uh, it's exciting. It's exciting to finally be at that place where there's no being put on about it. It's um, me just kind of raw and vulnerable with no makeup and my hoodie, you know? <laughs> and this is this is who I am. And that's freeing. It's so freeing that it just, it expounds every other aspect of your life. Um, as far as, you know, the physical world, I am still a nurse. I'm still, um, you know, raising my daughter. She just got her associate's degree. So I'm super excited for her to have, you know, achieved that through all this COVID madness. <laughs> But um, I'm also still practicing yoga every morning. I have my kind of rituals that keep me on track and in alignment with, you know, this mindful way of being that I'd like to exist in. Um, and then I, I spend every day out in nature. Um, at least a bit of it is dedicated to being out there with my new teacher. Fantastic. You know, some, something we can all learn, something we can all take something away from. And just, uh, I'm sure it teaches you too, not to fear the future so much that if one of the best things that ever happened to you was falling down a cliff, essentially in a canyon, anything that quote goes quote wrong uh, can be potentially 
one of the best things that could ever happen to you if you decide to to look at it that way and decide to make that a point that you can make those changes you've always wanted to make. So I'm sure it does give you confidence looking into the future that, you know, if this makes me stronger, anything can. Yeah, I think wrong is just an opinion. It's not a reality. Mm -hmm. And if you can be enticed into that curiosity of what lives here, what can I learn from this? How can I make this my new teacher? And the reason why I grow, then everything has a positive side to it. And it's much easier to see it if you're kind to yourself. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Well, Nicole, thank you so much for coming on and telling us just a little bit about your story. I'm excited to check out the film. You said hopefully that'll be the fall. Um, we would love to help spread the word when it is out uh, to uh, to help get folks out there to check it out. I would love to watch it. And best of luck with the remaining aspects of that project. Oh, thank you so much. If anybody would like to um, host a screening or, you know, sign up for the newsletter, you can always find us at wheretheropeends.com. And we're also on social media at wheretheropeends. So thank you so much for this opportunity to speak with you and your audience, Mason. First of all, thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun.